Today there was a delay, but it also gave an opportunity to show a picture to your right or left as you look forward. Uh, who does not know what that is? Who knows what that is? Okay, good, good. All right. So, uh, what, what would you say the, the era is, of that? looking at the background? I, I'm, I'm thinking like late 60s, early 70s, earth tones. You know, I'm thinking of a middle America bowling alley somewhere in Indiana. A uh, uh, lot, lot of cigarette smoke, uh, maybe a few beers being drunk, uh, and uh, they're wearing the tight stretch uh, polyester bowling league shirts. But uh, it's a bowling, it's a bowling uh, lane, of course, bowling alley. And uh, I don't know how many of you, how many of you have bowled at least once in your lives? Wow, okay. How many of you would have considered, would consider yourselves semi to decent or uh, bowlers in, in a humble in a humble way objectively uh, decent okay all right a few up there all right I, I saw who they were yeah. anyway okay um, bowling is a, is a very interesting sport uh, I uh, I don't know how many of you have, have watched much bowling. I think I've told you before, when I was a kid growing up and my mother was in the church and my dad wasn't, I was always hoping that my dad would let me stay home with him if he wasn't going out with his drinking buddies that afternoon and I could stay and he could make a pot of chili and we could watch the Pro Bowlers Tour, which was great. But then, as I've told you many times, he ruined it all by coming into the church and then I had to go to services every Sabbath and I couldn't watch cartoons Saturday morning and bowling in the afternoon and wide world of sports and American sportsmen, uh, all that. Kurt Gowdy. I, anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's long gone. Uh, Another show, I, I just, again, a little trivia here, but uh, another show out of the 70s that I love to watch, uh, how many of you remember this show? It was a half-hour show, and it was called Bowling for Dollars. How many of you would, anybody watch bowling? I want to see you, put your hands up, be confident of that. Bowling for Dollars, okay. I love that show. I thought that was the coolest thing. These were just real, regular people off the street, bowlers that would come on to this show and they would get a chance to win these incredible prizes. If they bowled a strike, they got, what was it? I think it was like a hundred bucks or 250 bucks. But if their next bowl, they, they bowled a strike, then they got it up to, up to 250. But then if they bowled three strikes in a row, then they got, uh, often they would get, uh, in one situation, I remember a person got a Caribbean cruise, or one was Monte Carlo, uh, he and his wife to, to Monte Carlo, and if you bought four, if you got four strikes in a row, you won a Chevy Chevette. Uh, so it was, you know, it was a really, really cool show, but the pressure and all that, you know, you'd see a gutter ball every now and then, so it was great. But uh, anyway, I used, to, I used to watch Bowling for do Dollars and think, wow, what would that be like uh, to get on there? But anyway, I never, I never did. I, I liked to bowl. My dad was a, a, a relatively serious bowler. He carried uh, a 180s, mid-180s average, played in a bowling league. Of course, 300 is a perfect, perfect game where uh, you have 10 frames uh, that you bowl, and in the, the 10th frame, if you bowl a strike, you get two extra balls uh, if you bowl of spare, you get one extra ball, but lots of terminology. But, you know, bottom line is you look at the bowling alley, and you look down there, and you've got to knock those pins over. They're down at the end, and if you hit 
you, you generally, you, generally you, you always want to hit some part of that head pin. The head pin is that pin way up in front because if you miss that head pin, uh, you're, you're not going to, it, most of the times the pins aren't going to come back around and knock that head pin. If you, if you want to get a strike, you've got to at some point hit some part of that head pin. You can hit it if you're a right-hander and you come in at, at an angle kind of right to left, You'll, you'll hit on the right side of the head pin unless it goes way over and then you might catch it on what they call the Brooklyn side where you still hit the head pin but you hit the, the, the pin on the left side. Uh, I'm a lefty so I, I come in from, from left to right. But uh, let's look at the next slide. This is, this is the extent of my uh, PowerPoint here today. The next slide begins to get into more of the nitty-gritty of what bowling is about. Those of you that are bowlers uh, would, would readily recognize this, but it's, it's, a, it's a fairly narrow lane, and then all of these markings are up there on the, on the bowling alley. You actually see small little boards, and the boards help a person figure out where to start. If you look at the far left side of it, you'll, you'll see a series of, of dots, and then just right of that, you'll see another series of dots. And that's generally for a person who takes a longer uh, run at, at the uh, foul line. The foul line is that line right there that you don't cross. You know, one of the keys that you always have to remember is you have to stay off the foul line. You can't you can't step on the foul line or it's a foul and, and the, 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 uh, the ball doesn't count. That's, um, that's nearly the main thing that you want to remember. The, the thing you most want to remember in bowling is to, when you rear back and release the ball, you really do need to remember to release the ball. Uh, I don't know if any of you have seen situations I have, they're really funny, uh, uh, where the, the person forgets to release the ball and the person goes down the lane uh, arm first like Thor's hammer. But anyway, uh, so, you know, if you, if you use the far left, that, that's probably because you have a six or an eight step approach. A, uh, the one that's a little bit closer to the, from there to the right is a, is a shorter approach. I generally had a four step approach to the foul line. Now, now Jeff, uh, my brother-in-law, he, I, if I remember correctly, he was a six-stepper. He went way back uh, and, and, and walked it in uh, to, to approach the lane. So as you look at the, the dots and you also see the boards, that helps you figure out where do I start. I've, I've got to get to the right starting point. And it, we won't go back to the first slide, but if, if, you were, if you're trying to just bowl Looking down at that head pin, now where is it on that head pin? What part of that head pin? You can't really even see the details of the head pin from all the way back at the other end of the lane. So that's what these other uh, little triangles are and the little dots in front of the line are, are for to help you see where I want to focus as I start to bolt. I, if I, if I, I don't want to look all the way down at, that, at the, the head pin. I'm going to look at these little arrows here at the beginning or maybe even just up from that. I'm going to look at those because that's where I want to release the ball. But so many factors go into it. Uh, do you want to throw with one hand or two hand? Uh, back when I was a kid, if you did two hands, it was because you were tiny and you could only, you know, like that. Uh, 
I really worked that uh, ahead of time to get that just right for you. But, but uh, the, the squatting and just and throwing. But now uh, anybody that watches bowling realizes that a lot of the pro bowlers are doing a two-handed uh, roll. They, they, use, they use two hands to, to get a lot more action on the ball, and, and uh, it supports them. But, you know, you've got to make a decision about that. You've got to make a decision about where to start. You've got to make a decision depending on the, the way in which you release the ball, how much action the ball is going to have of where you want, to, want the ball to, to land initially and then turn to hit the right spot on the head pin to create the action that you want to to get the strike. It is, it is very, very technical, even to the point where you'll hear the announcers talk about the oil on the lanes, the oil patterns on the lanes. If you get outside of that pattern hitting, it'll, it'll cause the ball not to act as much or, or act too much. It's very, very technical. But it is much more than just standing back there and saying, oh, there are those pins. Oh, there's that head pin. I think I want to try to hit that thing. We get the point, right? So we're going to talk about an aspect of that today that deals with bowling. You've got to follow some other steps first. To get to, get to success, the success being ultimately to hit that head pin and hopefully create enough action, a chain reaction to where you get a strike, knock all 10 down, or knock almost all 10 of them down to where you can get a spare, you're, uh, you're, in, you're in pretty good shape. That's the, the nature of, of the game. If you, can, if you can knock 10 down, you get... The, the next two balls that you throw count in the first frame and the, the, the score is compounded. If you have an open frame where you don't knock all 10 down, then you don't get those extra forward balls uh, counted towards your previous one. The highest game I ever bowled was a 246. It was at the feast in Panama City Beach. It was a teen activity. And it was one of those, uh, it was rocket lanes that was right across from Edgewater there, and uh, I, I thought it was quite a feat because it was disco day, you know, where they, they turn off all the lights, and it's just, you know, all these lights going everywhere, and the focus that I had was just, frankly, incredible uh, to, to be able to bowl a 246 with, with things going on, and, uh, but what happened was the very first frame uh, I bowled, uh, I got an open frame, I bowled a split, where I, I, I hit the head pin straight on, and I had two pins out at the end. I couldn't pick them up, so that hurt. But then I went on in the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth frames, I got strikes. It was, it was incredible. As I got each strike, I felt the presence of this crowd gathering around me. And by the time I was in the 10th frame, all three people were just really, really, really cheering for me. But, but I was hitting it on, the, on the, the, the right, the proper side. I was hitting it on the Brooklyn side. Sometimes I bowled what I would have considered was a split ball and it was strikes. So everything was just going great. And then in the 10th frame, I bowled another split, and I didn't even get my extra ball at the end. But anyway, 246, that was my uh, claim to fame. I think I've probably gotten over 200 a whopping five or six times. So I'm a very average uh, bowler. But I know there, there are probably some aficionados here that uh, bowled frequently in the 200s. But it's a neat game. It's a neat game. And uh, I'm always very sore afterwards because I use muscles that I, I don't normally bowl. But bowling is an interesting sport. Let's, let's talk about that as we move forward. Let's turn to Luke 14. 
thinking of, of Jeff, we, we have, as I've told you before, we have these Jeff-isms that we use uh, often as we think of different things. He had these phrases that he would come up with that were just the most, most unique phrases. They were uniquely Jeff. Uh, Jeff had two phrases that he most often used when he bowled. He would bowl in leagues. He was really a serious bowler. Uh, as his dementia increased over the years, he had trouble with balance and, and struggled with bowling. But Jeff's uh, favorite, uh, his favorite phrase was, I was robbed, uh, and that was any time that he didn't get a strike uh, that he thought he should. Uh, I was robbed, and what was the, I just forgot the other one. It was one of my, oh, oh. Yeah, I was robbed, and that should have been a strike. I mean, he could hit, he could hit the very end pin at the very, at the very end and say, that should have been a strike. But uh, anyway, he, he loved to bowl. He loved to bowl. Re- reflecting upon this year's feast caused me to reflect as well on my, uh, my Christian walk and my fellow brothers' and sisters' Christian walks especially as we go forward. I I learned a lesson this past feast. Uh, You know, sometimes we come away from the feast, and you can take down the slide now. We won't go back to it. But sometimes we we come back from the feast, uh, and sometimes as we take a look at our lives, uh, as we reflect on certain things, we can come away from situations a bit disappointed. You know, with that feast, that should have been a strike. Uh, but but it, but it didn't quite uh, didn't quite hit that spot. It didn't quite serve as a strike. I was uh, robbed of a great experience. I don't know what happened, but it, things just didn't go well. A good lesson uh, for me this year, uh, and uh, something that I reflected upon Mr. Franks in accord a, a couple of weeks ago that that ties to this. Is, is what helped me come away from the feast and, and help me move towards life as I go forward with a construct that I, I think will be very effective. It was very effective going into the feast and got us through the feast to where we didn't say that should have been a strike. It really was a strike. And uh, Lisa and I were not robbed of a great experience. Uh, we did know what happened, and, 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 and it was good. And this is a very basic point today, but it's a a point that is so critical for us as Christians that, and it's so basic that it's surprising that we don't do this more, but it it is critical. It's critical in everything that we do. Going to the feast this year, I went to the feast with a plan. Uh, Did you go to the feast with a plan? What was that plan? As you've come back from the feast... Have you developed a plan? What's your plan? What's your plan for going forward this year? What what are the things that you're planning to work on and develop this year? What are the chinks in your armor? What are the the things in your life that you feel like, ah, I'm not bowling strikes right here. And and I, I, I know the end result. I know the kingdom of God is there, and I know this thing about vision, and I believe I have vision, I have vision to see that this is off here, uh, off in the distance, and I want to hit that mark uh, of attaining the kingdom of God, God's great gift that, that he'll give us, eternal life. But getting the plan, getting the plan in place, where are we on our plan? Are, are, are you back to, 
you know, I, 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 don't, I don't really know. I really haven't thought of any real goals or plans that I have set as I come back from the feast. I, I guess, you know, I, I guess just need to really hang on. I guess I got to hang on uh, somehow. Is that where you are? Is, is that where, where I am? It's so critical for us to, to set priorities in our lives. It's so critical to develop plans of how we'll live by those priorities. It's so critical to implement the plan. What's, what's your game plan? What's my game plan as we go forward? That's the title of the message. What's your game plan? I can't, I can't make up your game plan for you. You can't make it up for me. What, what, what is our game plan as we move forward? Mr. Frank said in the in accord, I, he made this statement, I truly hope all of you had a wonderful feast and that we're all ready to make this new year one of spiritual progress as we edge closer and closer to the end of this age, toward the headpin. He actually didn't say that in the message, but, but to the headpin. You know, uh, and then he said, well, that will do it from here from now. Oh, I messed it up. I've been practicing that. Well, that will do it for, from here for now. That's it. Anyway, I, one of these days I'm going to get that. He says that so well every time. Uh, Luke 14. Luke 14. This is a passage we cover every, every time we, we go through baptism counseling. At some point in, the, in the, the various phases of the baptism counseling, usually often at the end, we come to this, this passage, but it speaks to the plan. I want us today to think about our plan. I want us, if we haven't developed a plan, maybe you have. Maybe you've really been working on a plan. Maybe you have something outlined uh, as you go forward from the feast that uh, you're, you're planning to talk about with your wife, that you and your wife have come up with, you and your spouse have come up with, that, that you and some close friends are saying, this is what we're really going to try to do this year. This is what I'm going to do personally. This is what I plan to do this way. This is, and, I'm, and I'm in the process of developing a plan. Are you there? Ha- have you thought about that? Because it's not going to just happen. It doesn't happen. Uh, otherwise, we end up just hanging on somehow, uh, and sometimes we end up not hanging on very well. Luke 14, verse 25, now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, if a person can't do all of those things, that person, Jesus Christ says, cannot be my disciple. Matthew 10 talks about the phrase loving less by, in, in a sense, loving less by comparison. What he's saying is Jesus Christ, our, our brother, loving, loving him, loving his way, being convicted of that, that must be the driving force. Everything falls be, behind that or, or below that in priority. That is our, our focus. Otherwise, we can't, we can't be his disciple. We talk about that at baptism. Uh, don't, don't go down this path and get wet to get wet. And, uh, and expect to, okay, God's going to give you his spirit, if, if, uh, but, but I, I still want to do these things. I put these things ahead of that, but it's the thing to do. You know, it, it's, it's a serious, serious commitment that we make at baptism. It is saying, I will follow you till death. I will take up my cross and follow you, Jesus Christ. I will follow my Father in heaven. I will strive to live the life that, that Jesus Christ lived on this earth in, in fully giving his life uh, in service to his Father and ultimately to his fellow man. He says here, uh, verse 
27, whoever, whoever does not bear his cross, you know, again, willing to give up his life, to, to die daily to our own selfish needs and desires. He, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me can't, can't be my student. He can't be a follower of me, my disciple. And then he makes these statements. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost? Develop a plan. Make, can I, as I look at the cost factors here of what, of what the, the wood's going to cost now, these structures, the, all that's going to go into this, make, can I finish this project? I, 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 don't, I need to look at that. I need to count the cost. I need to set up a plan. Verse 29, lest after he's laid the foundation, he started down this path and he's not able to finish, all who look see it and begin to mock him. The man started to build, but he couldn't finish. Verse 31, and then we, we see something that we're going to build upon today. Or what king going to make war against another king? So we're, we're switching back now. We're thinking of this analogy. Here I'm a king and we've got somebody, a, a nation that's encroached upon our lands, uh, and, and we need to drive them out. And I'm going to go and, and uh, we've got to take this, this, this people out, or they're going to overrun us. Uh, he's getting ready to go to war. Does not he first sit down and say, okay, we've got 10,000 and they've got 20,000. Are we going to be able to do this? Well, we've got the high ground here. We've got this, that. We've got this armament. Ooh, no, wait a second. Uh, I don't think we can do this. But they count the cost. They develop a plan. They see if they can go to battle, go to war. We know the, the analogy here about the kind of war that we're fighting as, as God's people against the great opponent, the, the God of this world. Uh, so we're, we're thinking about that. We're, we're weighing, the, we're counting the cost. We're weighing all that. Uh, or else... Uh, verse 32, while the other is still a great way off, he realizes, okay, we, we're, we're going to lose this battle. So then, as he's counted the cost, he goes and asks conditions of peace. He, he works that out to work to a resolution. So again, what was your plan for this past feast? Did, did you reach your goals? What, what's the plan as you have returned from the feast and are going forward? I believe Dr. Levy talked about Bible study. Uh, uh, last last week. You did, didn't you, Dr. Levy? Okay, so how have you done in that area? As, as he gave that message last week, did, as a result of that, did that help, uh, did it help you formulate a plan? Or was it a, you know, I, I liked it, he had some good ideas, yeah, it's pretty good, but nothing's really happened. I don't know, you, you know, you know whether or not you have started to formulate a plan. Maybe uh, some of you have an excellent plan, and you've been enacting that plan in Bible study, and, and you got some extra tips, and wow, this, this, this would fit in well here and, and well there. Great, that's good. But what if we haven't? What if we haven't? We, what if we haven't planned? Are you okay with that? Am I okay with, with not putting something in place? Because I can guarantee you it isn't going to get better. It's not going to get better between now and the next feast, uh, between now and the spring holy days, if, if we don't develop uh, that plan and build on that plan. So we've got a, a war uh, that's talked about here in Luke 14. One of the things that I've enjoyed uh, about wars, uh, are, are not that I love war, war is, war is awful, but the, the strategies 
of, of, of even reading the Old Testament and the, the battles that have taken place and the, the strategies that God uh, told Israel through the prophets to, to implement as they are going to, uh, to fight against this nation or this nation. Uh, so you've got that going on. And then uh, in, in another realm, you've got the world of athletics and, and competition. And when I, when I talk about that, I, I'm talking specifically of of the kinds of athletics where you are competing against an opponent. So I want to talk about that today. We'll, uh, we'll keep bowling in our mind, if you want to call bowling a, a sport. We'll keep bowling in our mind, and the, the analogy that we, we covered there of seeing what's right in front of you to be able to get to that end point of hitting that head pin where you want. But let's talk about sports and competition and let's talk about war, because we're engaged in sports. We're engaged in a, a spiritual competition, and we're engaged in a spiritual war. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. In developing our game plan or our battle plans, it's critical to acknowledge our own weak areas. Uh, do we know our limitations? Do we know our vulnerable points? Are we striving to shore up those weak areas, to know our opponent's strengths, to know uh, our own strengths. Do you know your vulnerable areas in, in your Christian walk? Do I know mine? Do we know where we're uh, vulnerable here and there, my weak points? How am I addressing them? What are my strengths? Do we know our strengths? You know, where you, you look at 1 Corinthians 12, you look at Romans 12, you see this, this body of Christ that is comprised of, of various, that comprises of various members, and, and those members each have their, their role. Uh, do we know what those are? Do we know those strengths, those gifts that God has given us? And as a result, do we, do we plan accordingly? 2 Corinthians 11, a, a familiar passage. Uh, sec, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 2. Verse 11, we realize that Paul here is dealing with the, the issue that he dealt with back in 1 Corinthians 5 of this person who was living a, a lifestyle that was contrary, very contrary to God's way of life. The church wasn't doing anything about it. Uh, he said, I don't have to be there to judge this situation. Put him out, cast him out to Satan uh, and, and see if this guy repents uh, because it's it's destroying the church by having this kind of filthy lifestyle involved in the church and everybody like oh, okay it's no big deal it's kind of okay get that guy out put him out and cast him out to satan give him over to satan so that this person will realize that uh, his life is so far contrary to god and he has is removed he's removed from the body of christ and needs to turn back to that otherwise he thinks everything's okay uh, and that's not good. That's not healthy. It's not good for the congregation. It, 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 uh, it uh, really brings everything down. So the church did that. So he comes back in 2 Corinthians and says, hey, this guy has turned his life around. He's, he's, he's repented. And, and now for us to continue to keep him out uh, is, is creating a stumbling block for him. And, and, and we don't want to do that. So he says in, in uh verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 2, I urge you to reaffirm your love to this person, this 
forgiveness, this welcoming this person back to the fold. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you're obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive, Paul says. For if, if, I indeed, if indeed I have forgiven anything, I've forgiven that one for your sakes, your sakes, in the presence of Christ. And then he makes this statement, lest Satan should take advantage of us. Satan, in that situation, had the opportunity to take advantage of them. Satan, the opponent, goes on the offense, the offensive mode, and, and works on taking it. Was, was, he was, Paul was concerned that he was going to work on the, through his offensive mode to take advantage of them in terms of viewing themselves in, in a way higher than this person and, and not being able to see, hey, this person has returned to the, to the flock. This person is really striving to turn his life around. He's making changes. We, as God forgives us, we need to be forgiving of this individual and welcome this person back, lest Satan should take advantage of us. It's a way to get in there. I, don't want, I remember what this guy did. I don't, I, don't, I don't want him back. He could do this or this or this. What if he truly turns? Would we want God to treat us that way as we turn from something? So he says that, and then he says this, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Are we? Are we ignorant of his strategies? Do we know the kinds of strategies that he uses against us? Do I know? Do I recognize them? Do I see the patterns of how he has worked at me over the years. How does he work at you? How does he get in at you? Through what, what method does he tend to use? Does he follow a pattern? He does with me. Yeah, I, I see certain patterns that he uses, devices that he's found work uh, on Andy if Andy allows that, if Andy's not on guard to his offensive moves against me as my chief opponent in this sport that I'm participating in against him, that I really want to defeat him soundly. <laughs> uh, do you know them? Do you see how he's using them now? And what plan have you put in place for those kinds of attacks to develop plans for his offensive moves against you and me? Let's talk about some examples of, of Satan's plans, his, his attack modes. He can attack us by singling us out for ridicule because we're different. Could be school uh, situations where all of a sudden you're in a social situation. Maybe the teacher's there. Maybe it's just folks that you're, you're, you're hanging around and all of a sudden this topic comes up and it's, it's awkward because we know what we believe in this certain subject and they're starting to talk about this and everybody's laughing and I'm in this group as they're talking about something that's, that's inappropriate or whatever. Uh, and I, I feel the awkwardness if I, if I don't laugh along with them. If I feel, I feel the awkwardness if I, whoa, even say something that uh, I, I'd rather not discuss that. I don't, I don't think that's appropriate. Or if I, to walk away. Uh, you know, he, he, will, he will try to ridicule us at, at work. Uh, he'll do it with beliefs. Feast, could be drinking parties, language starts being thrown around, holiday parties, not trying to knock us off balance just a little bit, putting us in an awkward position. Well, 
So we need to develop a plan. How, how will I handle this if this comes up in this situation? If this situation were to come up, is there anything wrong? Is it appropriate for us as God's people to, to plan for the attacks that we know where we have been vulnerable in the past when he does this? Or do we just pray like crazy, God, please don't allow this to happen. Please don't ever allow this to happen because I don't think I can handle it spiritually. Uh, Granted, uh, speaking of, of Job, as, as Mr. Gerard said, yes, we want to pray that God puts a hedge around us. We want that hedge. But at the same time, God sometimes tests us because he wants to see us pass the test. He wants to see us do what Jesus Christ said, that nothing comes before me in, in, in this way of life. Or, or this guy can't be my disciple. He wants to know and he needs to know. God needs to test us. Is it wrong for us to say, God, in your love and in your care and in your concern for me because you want me to be more like your son and grow up to the fullness and stature of Christ, please test me. Test me. Please test me gently. But, but, but test me. Help me learn because I want to be, I want to be more like you. I, I want to grow to be more like you. Uh, so to be ready to give a defense, this be ready to give a defense uh, of the hope that's uh, in you with, with meekness and fear, as 1 Peter 3 talks about. Uh, God, God wants us to plan for those situations because Satan will attack us in those weak areas. In basketball, those of you that have played quite a bit will know, uh, will know what I'm talking about here, and it happens in other sports. They'll, they'll do it. I, a fellow was... Uh, who's a soccer uh, aficionado up in Sherman that played a lot of soccer in his life, said uh, this happens in soccer a lot as well. You'll see it happen in, in football, but it's called when a team, uh, the opponent tries to up-tempo you. Have you everybody, anybody ever heard of that? They're trying to up-tempo you. Uh, in football, those of you that are football fans, you know they'll do the, uh, the no-huddle offense. They, don't, they want to create a situation where they do not allow the defensive specialists on certain downs to get in to the play. So if they do a no-huddle offense, they're constantly uh, there on the line, so you can't get your specialty players in, and they can create a, uh, a, a, a situation where you're off balance. You don't have the right personnel in at the right time. They up-tempo you. They, they turn up the tempo. In soccer, you'll see it to where a, a team will, will, will try to control the ball uh, as, as much as they can, but they'll do it at a certain pace. And then, you know, in, in a certain period, uh, for about a 10 or 15 minute period, all of a sudden they'll just ramp up the intensity and the speed and everything as a team and just up-tempo you. You're, you're, you're settled into a certain tempo and then they do that. In basketball they'll do that. If it's a, a run-and-gun team that can, can run up and down the court, they'll try to run you out of the gym and where... where you know, you know, if we operate under this game plan because we're not that fast, if we slow it down and run our, our set, we're going to do well. But if they up-tempo us and we're out of our rhythm, we're not going to be effective and they're, they're going to control the, the flow. Satan does that with us. He tries to up-tempo us. He tries to take us out of our game. We, we need to recognize this. Busy, rush here, rush there. No time for quiet reflection. No time for this. No time for that. Satan will try to get us to resorting to a losing game plan, a game plan that is a result of poor time management. 
Do you ever find that uh, after a week you look back and you say, you know what, my game plan for this past week was lousy. I had no game plan. It was just fires putting out here and there and here and there. Uh, and, and sometimes that, that does happen. Sometimes life hits us so hard on, on so many different fronts. But, but at the same time, often as we look back, we find out and we realize, you know what, I, I had opportunities to take control of the situation, at least in terms of managing my schedule and, and not letting life just completely happen to me, but, but, but to take control of the things that, that I could have versus having no game plan at all. You know, Aaron and, and the calf, uh, the golden calf, uh, you know, did, did they have a game plan going into the whole thing when Moses was going up to receive the law of God and to meet with, meet with God for 40 days and 40 nights? Uh, what, what, if, what if Moses doesn't come back right away? What if, uh, what if Samuel, uh, and I'm Saul, uh, what, if, what if Samuel doesn't come back right away. He said to wait here until such and such a time. Uh, he is the prophet of God, so he is speaking for God as he's giving me, King Saul, this instruction. What happens if he doesn't come when he says he's going to come? What happens if the people begin to get uh, frustrated and concerned and on edge? Uh, what, what's my game plan? Uh, Aaron was, I don't, I don't know what happened. I mean, we, we, we put... It just, you weren't coming and we just kind of threw this gold in and this fire and wow, you know, it, out came a calf. Wow. Uh, so the game plan, uh, the game plan, it is critical that we establish uh, a game plan going into things. Things are going to happen to us, uh, but, but if we go into life with a game plan, we're in much better position. Let's go to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. I don't know if uh, this has happened to you as well. This is an, another ploy that Satan will, will often use is, you know, maybe you are a planner. Uh, I'm not such a good planner. I'm getting better at being a planner. Uh, but maybe you are a planner or have a game plan. But Satan, with different things, will push us at times to, to go outside of uh, our, our boundaries, to compromise, to, to just slightly go outside of that game plan. No, I said I was going to, this, this was where my boundary was going to be here, and this was where my boundary will be here. He didn't come in and, and hit you to where he was going to take you 50 feet away from your boundary, but just a little bit off that boundary. And did I compromise? I, just to exceed it a little bit. He works, he works again in, in looking at the, the chinks in our armor. Philippians 2, so we start thinking about one construct that is, is very important in going on going forward is, is this whole thing of pre-activity planning. Before we even go into the event, whatever it is, are, are we thinking about the game plan? What kind of game plan that we're operating under as we go into this situation? Ezo and Ezo in their Growing Kids God's Way program uh, talk about this with the whole discipline flow chart of, of working with kids. Uh, it's, not, it's not correction, but it's a form of discipline, and it's a, it's a 
an educational form of discipline. Discipline not in a, in a, in a negative way, but discipline in terms of, of, of teaching discipline, of how, how I should conduct myself. But it's, it's, for instance, we're getting ready to go over to the Williams home, uh, and uh, we're, we're, we're taking our three kids to the Williams home. Uh, we know that, uh, 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 I'm trying to think of a name that's not somebody here in the church, uh, uh, Helga. Helga Williams uh, is, is, is known for being so happy when the kids walk in the door that she gets right up in the face and grabs their cheeks and say, oh, it's so good to see you, so happy. So, and you know that uh, one of your children gets so excited when people get anywhere near her and is so happy and wants them to grab the cheeks. And, and the other one, uh, the boy or the, uh, another girl, does not like the up-close and personal kinds of things with someone that I'm not really close with and someone that I'm really close with that I don't like up-close and personal things. But Helga is going to come because she's so happy to see you come into their home that she's going to come up and you know she's going to grab your cheek. So pre-activity planning is uh, nobody's in trouble at this point, but, but the parents prep the child for, okay, here, here comes this situation. This, this very well could happen. Helga's going to come out of nowhere, and, and she's going to grab your cheeks. How, how are you going to handle that? Uh, how are you going to handle that situation? Uh, are you going to accept that and then say, good to see you as well, and be positive and upbeat? If someone says hi, uh, if a parent, uh, the parent of uh, the Williams uh, say hi to you as you walk in the door, do you, are you going to turn and, and hide your, bury your face in, in the middle of, of my shoulder? Or do we teach our children how to say, well, hello, uh, thank you for welcoming us to your home, or whatever the age-appropriate phrase is. But, but it's pre-activity planning. Nobody's in trouble, but we're prepping them for what they could be facing so that we are prepping them to succeed. It's basic stuff, isn't it? But, but, it's, but it's what Christianity is like. We, God wants us to do pre-activity planning to plan about how we are going to uh, go forward in life as we interact with others, as, as we strive to be like Jesus Christ. Uh, so in, in thinking of all that, I want to, in the time remaining here, talk about some keys, uh, some keys in, in formulating our plan for the upcoming year. You put your things that you're working on. You, you plug those in. You do that yourself. Here are some keys in, in making those work as we formulate a plan for this up, upcoming year in these spiritual areas, whatever spiritual area you want to put in there. The assumption is that you will formulate a plan. Please formulate a plan if you, if you haven't. Please think about formulating a plan uh, as a husband and wife. Here are some things that we want to do as husband and wife this year as we go forward. That'll take us to that next notch, uh, that, that, that next uh, rung of the, of the stepladder. Uh, Philippians 2 verse 12, one, uh, a passage that we read often, we, we understand this, but it is critical in, in developing a plan, uh, one of the keys Therefore, my beloved, Philippians 2, verse 12, therefore, as a result of all that he just talks about, which is how Christ lived his life and humbled himself and God would exalt him, he, uh, as a result of every, everything that he has done and who he is, but he says, therefore, as a result of all this, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as much in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. How many times have we heard this phrase? But it is so, so critical. 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. It's, it's our part. God wants us to develop a plan to, to see what, to determine this is, this is how I'm going to be best situated to, to move towards salvation. And then he says, combined with that, lest we think it is we who are doing it all. Verse 13, for, because, for it is God who works in you. God, God is the one working. He says, we've got to develop a plan. We've, we've got to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. All that we do, it is, it is for God. And he is working in us as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. The first key is this. It is a must uh, a must for us uh, in, in, in beginning at the right starting point, and that is this. Uh, start at the right starting point. When, when we develop our plan, we must start at the right starting point going in. And that right starting point, as we see here in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13, is, is God, we start with God. We start with God. God, work, please work in me. It is you working in me. I, I want your essence. I want the way that you think. I want the way that Jesus Christ lived his life. I, I want that working in me. I deeply desire that. As I work out my own salvation with fear and trembling, I'm doing that in connection with you working in me. It is a team effort. It's not self-reliance. It's not white-knuckling it. I'm going to get really tough here all by myself. It is, God, please work in me as, as I strive to go forward. That's the starting point. It's, it always begins with God. Second Thess, uh, 2 Timothy 4 2 Timothy 4, verse 16, everything else will ultimately fail because part of our calling is to realize that we cannot do it on our own. Uh, we have to work out our own salvation because God is the one who is working in us. We, we do it jointly with God, uh, but, but we cannot do it on, on solo terms. And, and every time that we do, ultimately, we will fail. If it's self-reliant, the whole Christian walk of life is to realize that it is God working in us, not self-reliance. Second uh, so Timothy four verse sixteen, as Paul's uh, wrapping up his letter here, he's saying about the different folks that abandon him at, at, at different times, and uh, Demas forsook him, having loved this present world. Verse ten. But then he, Alexander the coppersmith did him a, a ton of harm. Uh, then we come to verse 16. He says, Even at my first defense, no one stood with me. All forsook me. But may it not be charged against them. As he realized different people were in different situations and various weaknesses uh, to where they weren't there to support him as, as they should have. But then he sees where, where that strength ultimately originates. And any plan that we have in going forward must start with this. But the Lord stood with me. He stood with me. He strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. I love this verse here in verse 18. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work. 
As, as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us to, both to will and do his good pleasure, he will deliver us from every evil work, from every act of the opponent, our, our arch rival in, in our sporting contest for spiritual life, Satan the devil. He will deliver us from every evil work and preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. There's a, a program that I've uh, gotten some training on to help folks with uh, various addictions, uh, but in this program, it's, it's the program called Operation Destiny. They, they speak to, to uh, this as, as folks <clears throat> battle uh, various addictions. I'll quote from it, page 124 of Operation Destiny. He says, uh, and again, they're speaking specifically here of addictions, but it by extension, it, it gets into the area of whatever we're working on in life, be it a, an addiction or, or a sin with which we battle. He says, there will be days ahead when Satan will attempt to have you forget the pain and consequences of your addiction. You know, we get going on a certain path and, and think we're, we're going well, and, and part, of, part of his ploy is, is to get us to kind of forget the bad actions, maybe the bad consequences, uh, uh, the result of not fighting the battle, not really realizing fully our degree of vulnerability to falling back into sin. But he'll try to get you to forget that reality, that that is always there, that that, uh, that, that gutter <laughs> in bowling, that the gutters are always there. He'll, he'll tend to want to get us to forget about the gutters because I, I'm, I'm rolling down the lane. I, I'm rolling right down. I got the oil worked out. I got all, oh, I'm, 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 I'm smooth right down the lane. Boom, head pin every time. He'll, he'll get us to forget about that. He said, and as you leave that reality, that reality of, of, those, of, of those gutters that are there, the, the ditches, he says, as you leave that reality, you have a high probability of entering back into temptation and your addiction. But if you can stay, if you can remain in God's reality of His love, His grace, and His purpose for your life, meaning again, starting at the right starting point, it is God who works in us, you will have the ability to reject Satan's dead-end tactics of temptation while experiencing a new dimension of relationship with God. You and I cannot defeat Satan. We cannot defeat him without God. We are miserably weak against him. He will devour us, destroy us. He will sift us like wheat. He will rip us to shreds if we try to defeat him on our own. We will lose. We only win. We only overcome Satan to the degree that God works in us and that we are totally reliant upon him. Because self-reliance, I'm strong, look at me. I've got great triceps, I've got great biceps. Look at my delts, they're incredible. Uh, it's nothing, it's nothing. He will devour us, he will destroy us. Uh, but with God, uh, he cannot defeat us. A huge part of baptism is, is, is making sure the person realizes where the starting point is. The starting point is, I acknowledge my sins, I recognize that God is God, I acknowledge my sins, I repent of those sins, I realize that life only comes through Jesus Christ, it, and I only have life because my sins are forgiven by His shed blood. 
I must, that is the starting point. It's not what I do to get to that, even though we must repent. It is, it is all what he is doing for us as we yield through him, to him. Okay, a second key is one that we've already talked about. Let's go to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. A second key in, in whatever sport, it could be basketball, football, this whole concept of being up-tempoed. Uh, understand that one of Satan's key ploys in all of our lives, especially at the end of the age, is to up-tempo you. He is, he is striving to do that. I, I think of coming back from the feast. Uh, again, my wife and I had an incredible feast. We had a plan and we enacted that plan. Uh, but Coming back from the feast, Satan has tried to up-tempo me. He tries to up-tempo me. Is he trying to up-tempo you? Has he up-tempoed you since uh, coming back uh, from the feast? Uh, getting us out of our game to force us to play the game in a, in a way uh, that we do not want to play. He wants us to play in a way that he knows we will not perform at our best. Are you and I going to allow him to up-tempo us? 1 Kings 19 is a situation where uh, Elijah was up-tempoed. He came back from an incredibly stressful situation, one of the most incredible uh, interventions of God uh, in front of a whole nation as, as God worked with him, the lone prophet, against the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the other, I can't remember which, there were two sets of prophets there. We, we know the story uh, of, of whose, whose sacrifice or whose uh, altar was going to actually uh, catch on fire and show that God was working uh, with them. So Baal's prophets slicing their arms, trying to create blood, uh, crying out to their gods uh, and to Baal to, to do that. He it, it didn't then... Elijah states this prayer before God as they pour water down on the altar and, and fire comes down and consumes that offering uh, and, and everybody realizes, wow, that, that, is, the, that is the true God. It's, it's that right there. Uh, so in, incredible event. All of those prophets that were false prophets are slain. A, a, a real victory then for, for God's way of life there. And then 1 Kings 19 verse 1, Ahab tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all these false prophets with the sword. Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah and she says, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Incredible stress. Incredible stress leading up to all of this of what happened. Uh, Up-tempoed through all of that. And then now this, his life is in jeopardy. When he saw that, he arose, he ran for his life and went to Beersheba. That's Dan, and Dan way up at one corner and way down in the southwest of, of, of Israel was Beersheba. He ran to Beersheba. He's hiding out, uh, left his servant there and, and got out of Dodge. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a juniper tree and he prayed that he might die. Just let me die. This is too much. I can't take all of this. Uh, I'm, uh, I've got this, this queen hunting my life, and she is a wicked witch that will take me out. Uh, now uh, it's enough. Now, Lord, just take my life, for I'm no better than my father. So, is, so then he lay 
and he slept under this tree. And suddenly an angel touched him, and he said to him, Arise and eat. Well, there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him. Arise and eat because you've got a journey ahead of you that's too great for you. So he arose, he ate, and he went on the ate and drank, and he went on the strength of that for 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God, even farther down. Uh, uh, going towards Egypt out there uh, in, that, in that region. And there he went into a cave and he spent the night in that place. And, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. He said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so Elijah said, I've been very zealous for the eternal God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I am alone left and they seek to take my life. He, he, he has been up-tempoed tremendously. He's worn out. He's stressed out. He's got uh, people trying to kill him. He is completely drained and sapped of, of, of all energy. Verse 11, So then God said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And, he, and the Lord, behold, the Lord passed by, and there was this great uh, strong wind that tore into the mountains, and it broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in that. Then there was this great earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. The earthquake, then a fire, and the Lord was not in the fire. But after that, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle. He went out and stood the entrance of the cave, and suddenly a voice said again to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because of the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword and I'm alone left and they're seeking to take my life. Still there. Then the Lord said to him, okay, you know, I, I didn't come this way. I came in this way. I have given you the opportunity. I, I have strengthened you. I've given you food. I've given you rest. Think about what I've done. Listen, I didn't, I didn't come through the fire. I didn't come through the earthquake. I didn't come through the wind. I am talking to you now. Listen to me, Elijah. Listen to me. And Elijah took that. He, he accepted that. And then God gave him a task to do. It was like God was just taking him and saying, Elijah, dial it down. Think, think about who I am. Think about what I just did for you. I have sustained you. I have, I have given you food and, and drink. And now I've got a task for you to do. I've got several tasks for you to do. And you know what? You can do it. And by the way, Elijah, as he gives him those tasks, verse 18, he says, Yet I have received, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. No, it's not you all by yourself. I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and, and every mouth that has not kissed him. One of the things that happens in this up-tempo phase that we see, and, and see this talked in, in various uh, programs is is that we can get in what's called halt mode satan gets at us through several ways halt uh, hunger not taking care of ourselves not eating as we ought uh, hunger angry or or angst or anxiety uh, will get us l 
loneliness. You're all alone. I, I, I am all alone in what I'm battling. I'm all alone over here. I don't have people helping me. I'm not supported by anybody. I'm all alone. And T, tired. Just plumb tuckered out. I'm worn down. I'm drained. I'm tired. Not enough sleep. Realize that Satan tries to up-tempo you and me through halt. Hunger, angry, angst, anxiety, loneliness, and tired. Is he working on any of us in that way right now? Are we allowing ourselves by not stepping back and saying, I, I can develop a plan here to take care of these basic things because when I, when I get these things in place with God's help, I, I'm ready to attack what, I'm ready to take on the tasks that God has for me to take. If we don't take care of ourselves in the areas where, and there are some situations where things happen, I, I get that, but, but it, I would ask all of us as, as, we, as we come back from the feast to say, how am I doing in, in these areas? How am I doing in just basic things like getting the sleep, getting the, the quiet time to listen to God, to, to listen to Him working, to, to be able to think to, to reflect upon what all is going on in this world, what all is going on in my life, what is a plan to work through that in, in my life, all of those kinds of things. These are basic human kinds of things that Satan gets in at us so that we aren't working our plan. Get it? Get it? Got it good, as we say? Okay. Uh, part three, a third key. We've got uh, just a few more keys here, but, but part three, and I won't spend a lot of time with this one, but be prepared to tweak the plan uh, as we develop plans, uh, you know, as we recognize and experience the surprise attacks of, of the adversary, uh, of, of the battle that we're facing. Uh, this game lasts our entire lives, and, and different challenges arise at different times. It may be the death of a loved one, a huge, serious illness that all of a sudden slaps us in the face that we're, we're facing, and we realize this changes everything. So it, sometimes it involves our, our tweaking our game plan that doesn't work now because of this factor. But, but tweak the plan. Tweak the plan as it's needed. Uh, a person uh, close to you who bails out on God's truth. Uh, a, a person who burns you, uh, recovering from one of our own failures, and then recognizing why we failed and, and how we need to tweak that plan. Tweak the plan. Tweak the plan as it needs to be tweaked. Verse, uh, let's go to 2 Corinthians 10. Uh, another key that, that's critical is, is understand, and this is, uh, this is crucial, understand that this plan that we, we undergo is not always a situation of being on defense. It is a plan also that is very offensive. God wants us to be defensive, and he wants us to have an offensive plan. What's, what's your offensive plan as you go forward? I love the, the offensive nature of, of what he says here in 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. Think about it from that, that perspective of the offense here. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Okay, here comes the, the battle, the warfare. We're not warring in that level. It's the weapons, the weapons, the instruments that we're taking into battle. And, and 
you know, to some respect, we can say these, these offensive weapons. Some of our weaponry is, is uh, battle armament, but, but some of it is, is offensive. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. These, these weapons uh, are mighty in God. These are the kind of weapons that we can go up and rip down this huge wall, this huge stronghold that has been blocking us from going forward to be more like Jesus Christ. God gives us the weaponry to just rip that out. It's the sword that can cut through anything. It's the, the, the power and the force to knock down these things full, full on. Uh, that's offensive. Uh, casting down arguments getting that and, and casting it out. Anything that is a high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, God gives us the tools and the power and, and the offensive weaponry to knock that stuff down. Anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And in, in essence, bringing every thought into captivity. Taking something offensively and grabbing that thing and sticking it in captivity. I am making that captive. That is, that is not going to uh, attack me. I'm, I'm taking offense against it to the obedience of Christ. This is what God uh, gives us the opportunity to do. Our weapons are mighty in God. They're offensive weapons. What are your offensive weapons? Submit to God. That is offensive. I eagerly go in submission in my life to God. Uh, and then uh, resist the devil, his attacks against me. He'll flee from us. Be strong in the Lord. Uh, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All of those, those kinds of things. Let's go over there to uh, Ephesians 6 really quickly. Ephesians 6. As we, as we look at that, uh, that weaponry, we won't go through, obviously, the whole armor of God. But, <clears throat> but Ephesians 6 talks about some of this offensive weaponry, these offensive uh, instruments that God gives us. So be strong, verse 10, in the power of his might. It's, it, it's, it's, it's a, a might that's there. Look at verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. God's Spirit working in us with truth, and, and we must worship him in spirit and in truth. His Spirit working with us and in us. Uh, we take this sword of the Spirit, this Spirit which is the Word of God. The words that I speak are Spirit and they are life, as he says in John. Take that. Take that offensively. Christ took that offensively as he went with Satan, as Satan attacked him in Matthew 4. He came back with, with the Word of God. It was a sword, and it just cast down the stronghold. It cast down everything that exalted itself against, uh, against God's way. It's there for us. It's a weapon that God gives us. Verse 18, praying always with all uh, prayer and, and, and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this, this, uh, this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. The last thing that we'll talk about as we wrap this up then, uh, the last key that gets back to uh, what, what Lisa and I found was, was our key success this year in, in the feast was Always be looking for ways to keep your plan simple. Simplify your plan. Simplify our lives, as Mr. Armstrong used to say. Uh, this is a, a lesson that, that I lived uh, uh, this, this past feast in which I benefited. We kept it simple. We realized that, that less 
was more. Here's my multi-level, multi-faceted plan for this past feast. A lot of high-level brain function is required to grasp what I'm getting ready to say, and this is free of charge. Okay, my number one goal uh, and plan this past feast was to spend an enhanced amount of quiet time with God each day, step by step, right in front of me. I did that. I did that, and it was really good. I really focused on that more than I ever have before. I've got to carve pieces of my day to do that, and I found that uh, Satan didn't, uh, as a result, uh, speed up things. I, I was able to, to control that and, and hear the, the still small voice of God. Secondly, our number two goal plan this feast was to fully engage in daily services and spend time talking with brethren after the service. Deep thoughts. That's really deep. Can you grasp it? You see what I'm saying? Basic, but, we, we, but we, we set that as a priority. That is critical for us as, as in being connected to the brethren. And our third big goal, our big plan that we enacted was to spend open-ended time with one another, not bound by deadlines time-wise. Whether it was walking, talking, uh, tasting uh, delicious food, being together while surrounded by God's creation, but we set up times this feast that were open-ended. Uh, and so much of what we have to do is so time-based that, uh, it, but we decided we're not going to do that. In just simply an overall desire to simplify our lives this feast. Deep thoughts by Andy, but it was very effective. And uh, it's, it's the same things that I've tried to implement as we've gotten back after the feast. What are your plans? That, that's what works for me right now. That's part of my plan right now. Satan's going to try to up-tempo me. He's going to try to get us to sweep everything away. He's going to try to get us off our game plan as opposed to uh, our proactively tweaking our battle plan as life happens. He tries to trick us into fighting a battle which we shouldn't be fighting. He tries to get us to neglect the big things like rest, sleep, health, time together, good eating habits, all of those kinds of things, complicating our lives with so much stuff that we can't clearly see where we are, let alone where we should be headed. That's what he's trying to do. So worried about hitting that head pin at the end of the lane that we don't realize that God puts the marks right in front of us. Let's turn finally to 2 Corinthians 10 again. Brethren, as we go forward, let's go on the offensive with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, God's indwelling of Himself and His Son in our very being as we go forward. Will you or, or have you individually or as a couple talked about your plan your defensive plan, your offensive plan. Our adversary, our opponent, Satan the devil, he has a plan for you. <laughs> he has a plan for me that he feels will work. Are we engaged with Christ and, and, and God working with them in their plan for victory of us over sin? I'll read from Heinz Kassirer's New Covenant translation, verses 3 through 5 again. He says, no doubt that it is this world we live and act in, but it is not on worldly principles that we fight our battles. The weapons which we employ in our warfare are indeed not of the world. No, they are full of might, wielded in the sight of God, ready to overthrow strongholds. 
It's vain human sophistries that we are overthrowing. Yes, and every high and mighty thing which sets itself up in opposition to the true knowledge of God. And we take captive every human device to secure its submission to Christ. Brethren, that's not defense, that's offense. That's full-on attack. May we go out in battle and defeat our opponent.